wherever you may be, and welcome to Stories from the Vortex. I'm Matthew Kressel, and I'm joined once again by Mary Lang. Hello. Now, for this episode, coming out just in time for Halloween, we're going to be looking at a recent box set from Big Finish that tries to recreate the feeling of an era well-known for its horror in Doctor Who. That would be the era of producer Philip Hinchcliffe that marked the first three seasons of Fourth Doctor Tom Baker on TV. And recent, of course, presenting us with the big box set, appropriately called Philip Hinchcliffe Presents, featuring two stories called The Ghosts of Graustead and The Devil's Armada. Dr. McDivitt's exhibition of living wonders and curiosities. Uh, is that something a lady should understand? It's a display of unfortunate physical specimens, otherwise known as a freak show. My gift, gentlemen, it doesn't just heal. It protects as well. Those men who are hunting you, who are they? On the top floor, a shadow drinking in the light. I am monstrous! My shape will not settle. Am I trapped here forever? Why do you want the corona? This is the night the grousted ghost walks again. Where, Clemmy? Where is your ghost? Clemmy! What are you? <laughs> are you afraid? Will you struggle? Go on, put up a fight. Get away from me! Edward, she'll trample you underfoot. Let me see. You ought to stay here. Yes, but I... That aspidistra has a lean and hungry look. I like it not. Such aspidistras are dangerous, so don't let it out of your sight. Uh, the first story from the box set is, of course, The Ghosts of Graustead, which is a big six-parter, very much, I think, capturing the whole flavoring of this particular era from uh, Philip Hinchcliffe. But yeah, I think each episode is broken up into like 24, 25 minutes. Right. They are been presented on TV. Yeah, they are, you know, anyway, I think six to ten minutes shorter than they would normally be if it was a Big Finish thing, because I think Big Finish normally is about a half hour in terms of episodes. Mm-hmm. But I think this is far, yeah, as you said, yeah, talking about just in the length, far closer to the TV series. My sort of overriding opinion, though, of this story is the fact that, like a lot of the six-parters on TV, it's a tad bit too long. Did um, you listen to the whole thing in one one roll? I did it in, I did it an episode at a time. Okay. okay. Um, but even then, it felt like it was still trying, perhaps, to stretch the story out a little bit, particularly towards the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was admiring how dense the story was um, episode after episode and it wasn't until the fifth and then the sixth that I began to f- realize you know my mind's kind of wandering because this seems like we're going in other directions here that don't really seem to feed the main story. Yeah and it goes off on a one episode tangent. Yeah. In episode five I think mm-hmm. really unnecessary story direction I think just to get it you know, that one more episode. Yeah, I'm glad you agree with me because I'm thinking I'm, you know, being a hater here, but uh, going into one character's whole backstory just just didn't seem to contribute much. Well, and at the 11th hour as well. Yeah, yeah. Which I found rather odd. It, 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 it's, you know, it smelt of almost desperation to kind <laughs> of get the story going a bit, uh, a bit further. Um, going back to what particularly Robert Holmes would do a lot in, when he was writing Six Partners, which was the idea that, if, you know, if you've seen Talent Away in Chiang, 
that um, you know you basically have a four part or a two part that you basically get done with your main story by the end of episode four, and then five and six takes it off on a bit of another tangent that's connected to that. And this did not. I think that was what um, Philip Hinchcliffe and his storylining, but also Mark Platt and actually having to flesh it out and write the scripts was trying to do. But I don't think they succeeded here very much in trying to do that. Because it felt very much like I was just sitting there going, you know, get on with it to a certain extent. <laughs> but we've kind of kicked off onto a, on a negative rant here. Um, but overall, I am just admire how well done this is. Yes. Um, other than, you know, that one thing about stretching the story out a bit in episode five particularly. But there is not, in my opinion, a wrong foot put uh, for any of these actors. I think they all did a, an amazing job. Um, and the one that I enjoyed the most all the way through, even though I didn't expect to, was uh, Tom Baker. Yes. The doctor. He is absolutely delightful. Yes. I mean, when we reviewed Destination Nerva and Night of the Storm Crow a very long time ago, it feels like, we talked about it, I think especially the erstwhile Robert Haynes, who I wish was here, because this is this is his era of the show, talked about that his Tom Baker's performances in there didn't really match his TV doctor very much at all. And that it did feel like it was Tom Baker coming in and basically playing Tom Baker playing the doctor, rather than, you know, actually being the doctor, as it were. And I think we continued, I think, to feel that, particularly throughout his whole first series of stories he did with uh, Big Finish. But I think as we talked about, you remember not long ago, we reviewed three stories from that second series he did with Mary Tam, and we felt he was getting much closer. Oh, not just much closer, but definitely enjoying himself. Right. And Those I think, were great stories, and they were well done. Yes. And I think in these stories here, he has finally come back to his TV doctor at last, particularly because of, I think, some, to a certain extent, I think it might even be because Philip Hinchcliffe is involved with it, because I didn't get the opportunity to hear all of the extra CD, but one of the first things on the extras disc is Louise Jameson talking about with having Philip Hinchcliffe in the studio, that the atmosphere kind of changed a little bit. And there was a big era, definitely an era of respect between Tom and Philip Hinchcliffe. So I wonder if maybe Tom was a bit more on his game, as it were, knowing that, you know, he had, you know, his former boss, as it were, not only in the studio, but also being one of the writers of this. But he is an absolute delight to listen to. Oh, yeah. And and some of the other actors um, in those extras um, that you may or may not have heard um, talk, too, about how he gets so into the role that he has a tendency to... Um, invent lines, things that just occur to him in the moment to say. And they say that when you're in the other booth and all you've got is a voice coming into your ear and what suddenly is being said is not the line that you were looking for. <laughs> it kind of throws them for a loop, but because he's having such a good time, um, you know, they just get into it right along with him. Right. And I think actually here he is actually giving a performance it's not the sense of him, oh, this is just Tom walked into a studio and just is playing Tom Baker, as it were. He is actually giving a performance, which is, you know, which is, you know, as I said, he's finally come back to his doctor on TV. There, you know, there's those moments of whimsy, which I think he's very, I think is what we tend to think of. 
and those moments of silliness and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But he can also be dark and brooding and quite serious. And I think until I kind of listened to this, I didn't necessarily feel like he had gotten back to being able to do that. Because particularly during his early years on TV, he was really able to do that. But I think it's particularly during the Grams Williams era when he was kind of given free reign. And I think during the early Big Finish stuff where he was given free reign, that he had some difficulty getting back to that. But here he absolutely gets back to that. And it's something it feels like at last that we do have Saturday Tea Time in 1977 all over again. <laughs> well, and another character that I, I tired of Leela uh, in the TV series. Um, because I think, how long can she keep up this pretense of being, you know, stupid or uneducated? Right. Um, so she was wearing thin on me in the TV series. But she is so good in this. The way they've written her, yeah, she's still uh, a bit uneducated. But she figures things out very quickly. She is there to defend the doctor. And that's her main theme uh, throughout this story and the next one. And I found her performance right on, and I thoroughly enjoyed her. And I think that part of it as well is that it, it's kind of like, I think, what happened with Leela happens, what happened to a certain extent with Liz Shaw, which is that she was created by one production team, that of uh, Hinchcliffe Holmes in the case of Leela, who Hinchcliffe ends up leaving at the end of the season where she's introduced about midway through. And... Graham Williams comes in and Anthony Reed takes over as script editor and they don't really know what to do with the character at that point. Whereas I think perhaps because of having Hinchcliffe back and having him involved in this and him originating the storylines and looking over Mark Platt's shoulders as he's fleshing them out and turning them into stories, into full scripts, I should say, that Leela is far better written than she probably ever was on TV. But I think as well that Big Finish, going right back to Tom's first season with them, I think, is really pushed to give her something to do, to make her more than that ignorant savage that, you know, she ended up turning into on TV. Well, the ignorant, the ignorant, ignorant savage in a leotard, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, which they, they've definitely gotten her away from. But, I, you know, and I think that you know, Louise Jamison's performances in both of these stories, but I think this first one especially, is really good. They don't lose the essence of that character, but they don't make her stupid either. Right, right. You know, and she's if she has to go and face danger, by Jove, she will. But she doesn't suffer fools gladly. There's a sense of curiosity to her. There's also a sense that she's wanting to learn if she can. Right. And also, I, I greatly admire Louise Jameson's performances, you know, performances for being able to, you know, bring out all of those qualities in the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, because I think she, you know, Louise Jameson is a very... I want to say underrated actress in a way, especially if you only know her from her TV stuff on Doctor Who. But, you know, we li- we've listened to her in Survivors and she's been in Blake Seven, one of the Blake Seven um, Liberator Chronicle stories that we haven't reviewed on the podcast, but I know we- we've both listened to outside of it, mm-hmm. uh, where she was extraordinary in that. So, you know, it's always interesting to come back to her playing Leela and finding that she's able to bring more depth to it. But it also it makes me feel like that if they just written her better on TV, she might have even stayed around longer on TV instead of having the kind of um, unceremonious and very unlikely exit that she had. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
the two of them are really just kind of the tip of really big casts in both of these stories. First story is especially because it's six part has a very big cast, um, including some people that um, we've mentioned before on the podcast, including Alan Cox playing um, Dr. Gideon McNiffet, who's this kind of, um, well, he's a con man, isn't he? Sort of running this freak show. Right, right. But he's got a secret. Yes, which ends up becoming at the, at the center of the plot. Right, because mysteriously, nobody is dying. Yes. The story of this first one, Ghost of Grouse, that really reminded me of being sort of a cross between Talons of Wang Chiang and The Hand of Fear. Ooh, yeah. Um, I think Philip Hinchcliffe, even on the extras, actually says that at one point. And I think that if I have, I think it's a very accurate sort of recreation of that era. I mean, right down to the characters. And of course, you know, the BBC to this day, if there's anything they're good at, it's Victorian costume drama. So I think, you know, you only have to look at something like Talents or even later in the classic series like Ghostlight to see the BBC was really good at doing that. So the story itself feels, even in setting, very much like it could have come from the TV era. Some of the stuff that they do in the story, however, in terms of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, you know, gore, perhaps, and what the villain of the story, Mordriga, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, does to people... I'm not sure you could have gotten away with that on Saturday Tea Time TV in 1977. Right, right. Speaking of her, Mordriga is played by Caroline Seymour, who we talked about very briefly when we reviewed Survivors a couple of episodes ago. Mm -hmm. Because I kept kept listening to the thing going, she sounds familiar, but I can't place the voice. (laughs) Her voice is so distorted in this, how could you find it familiar? It's when I saw the name that I... Uh, recognize who it was. Yeah, well, she ends up sort of becoming more human-like, I think, as the story kind of goes on. True. So they use more and more of her natural voice without the distortion. But, you know, when they reached that point, I kept thinking, this voice sounds familiar, I can't place it. And Mm -hmm. was then listening to the extras, and I went, oh, that's why. (laughs) And I want to give special um, kudos to the trio of the Body Snatchers and Mrs. Targate. Yes. Uh, they are just spot on all the way through, sometimes amusing and sometimes, oh, gruesome. <laughs> yes. It is kind of the um, sort of a, somebody actually describes it, I think, in the extras as Burke and Hare without the Scottish accents. <laughs> okay. Um, which actually, that was the very first thing I thought of when I was listening to the story. Um, and the fact that they're playing body snatchers and whatnot, and they're, you know, collecting these recently dead people, and they end up going off and, you know, killing people. Right. It's kind of like, oh, it's Burke and Hare in London. <laughs> 20 years and to late. know that uh, Mrs. Targate is um, supervising uh, basically a poorhouse where the people are dying, where they are getting the bodies from. Yes. And uh, just kind of sitting there going, it's like, you know, we're full to the brim. Why aren't people dying anymore? Right. Uh, and it's it's just, a, it is a very good story that I think really replicates this era of the show very well. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, my the issues with it I have are not in the performances or even the sound design, which is oh, absolutely right. superb. Yes. Even when the story goes off on its one episode tangent somewhere else, you know, you have no problem knowing exactly where you are. And all of the sound effects, and especially the music. 
I mean, you know, the music from the Tom Baker era is very distinctive. You know, Dudley Simpson's music. I mean, he scored virtually the entire era uh, throughout Tom's six six of his first seven seasons before John Nathan Turner came in and decided that, you know, Dudley Simpson wasn't needed anymore and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop could take it over. But I think that the music in this is very Dudley Simpson. Very much so. I mean, you, you feel like you could have pulled this out of a soundtrack from this era and it would absolutely work perfectly. Um, but I can't really fault it, as I said, for the performances or the sound design or the music. What I fault it for, as we said at the beginning of this, is the scripting to a certain extent. Not even in the scripting, because there's some wonderful dialogue in this. And there's some wonderful ideas. And it really echoes, as I said, Talent of Wang Chiang and The Hand of Fear. Uh, though it's set a good 30 years probably before you know, Talent of Wang Chiang. I think they even say that in the dialogue fairly early on. And it's actually 40 years before. 40 years, okay. It's because I, I, for some reason I kept thinking 1860, but it's got to be, yeah, it's got to be farther back than that. The problem with it, actually, I think is in terms of the plotting. I don't think there's quite enough story to get it through six episodes to the yeah. point that, as we talked about in episode five, they go off on a one episode tangent to somewhere completely different. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the reason for me, too, that it lost energy in that, that might have been an interesting story, but I realized that the bright energy of Tom Baker is not in that fifth episode. Yeah, it, it becomes far more focused on one of the supporting cast. Right, Leela. Well, and Leela isn't even there, is she? Well, she's there. She ends up uh, partnered with said supporting character for a part of it. But it becomes very much focused on somebody else. Yeah. And something else for the entirety of that episode. And it just right. kind of it it becomes predictable and it becomes dragged out for that yeah. for that episode. And I think that the problem is it's a bit like to make a to make a sort of a pop culture analogy, if you know, if you've ever seen uh, the movie Star Trek Generations where, you know, Yes. Uh, you, it's sort of this scene late in the movie when, you know, Patrick Stewart finally goes off and gets to meet, you know, William Shatner. Mm-hmm. And they go off and they do it in, in the Nexus, which is this uh, ethereal, otherworldly thing. Yeah. And the problem is, is that, A, the movie's not very good to begin with, which is not the problem here. But the problem is, is that, it, in that to do so, it slows the story down. And it lose, the story loses all of its energy. So right. that when you go back and you come in for the big finale sequence, it doesn't quite work because it doesn't have the energy to kind of keep it going. And I think that's exactly what happens here as well, mm-hmm. is that by going off on a one-episode tangent and basically going off and exploring the background of somebody else's you know, sort of a supporting character rather than something I think that's a bit more directly connected to the plot, it, the story just slows down. Right. And then when you come back for that last episode, I know for myself, I had to go back and re-listen a little bit to previous episodes to catch up again with what is, you know, what's the real story going on here? Yeah. And it's just, you know, and also as well that suddenly it's like there's, they go off on this tangent and there's been a, suddenly a big jump in time, which is, I know is standard fare for Doctor Who, especially mm-hmm. these days, but it felt unnecessary. Yes. In a big extent, that could have come right back. And I don't think you know, it could have come right back. And it would have, you know, that could have been gone a couple of days. It didn't need to be gone, what is it, six months or something. 
that right. was, and that's what confused me too, which made me go back and listen because it, it didn't hit me at first that there had been that big jump in time. Yeah. I mean, it's completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's just done because, oh, this will help move the story back along. Well, if that was the case, you really didn't need to go off on a whole tangent in episode five that frankly doesn't do a whole lot of anything. Yeah. But I think, you know, and I think in that regard, it suffers, as I said, from the problem that a lot of six parters from the, the classic series have. Not necessarily the ones from this era of the show, which were good at finding enough story to sort of tell across six episodes. I mean, you think back uh, on things like Genesis of the Daleks and Seeds of Doom and especially Talons of Wayne Chiang. This doesn't quite pull the trick off, as it were. I give them credit for trying, but, I, you know, I think it doesn't quite succeed in telling a story across six episodes. But, you know, it's like a lot of the six, you know, parters from that era. If it had been a four-parter, it would have been cracking good. It would have been brilliant. But in six episodes, it's just a tad too long, I think. Mm-hmm. The Devil's Armada. These are dark days. They say the world is out of joint. The stars are full of portents. And the roads are full of spies. Imps and devils wait at every turn. My men will search every crack in this house. Any Catholic priest they pull from your walls will face the rope. Can you feel the air? It has gone warm. It's fear. Something is watching. My head! My head is burning! A face looked over my shoulder, an ugly face with burnt skin and its eyes were green. Burning with green fire, surely you saw. This is not your world. Who are you? Let him go, old woman. Now, Leela, there's an alien invasion coming. Big finish. We love stories. This is my earth. The second story in this box set is thankfully only four episodes and is called The Devil's Armada and is set in 1588 as the Spanish Armada comes down on England during the reign of Elizabeth I, which I think as Mark Platt notes in an, in an interview in Vortex, is kind of ironic since he's um, written two stories around this time, one of which is referenced actually in the dialogue of the story, which is the first Doctor Companion Chronicle, The Flames of Cadiz. But this one is most definitely in the pseudo-historical territory of this era re-established by things like Pyramids of Mars, and especially Mask of Mandragora. And I think that it is safe to say that the Devil's Armada is almost an English Mask of Mandragora in a, in a way. Hmm. Because that story also sort of dealt with the sort of the idea of knowledge versus superstition. And that's what Mask of Mandragora, I mean, dealt with that kind of theme. And this kind of deals with it to a certain extent as well. Oh, but it really cashes in on the fears and the oppressive rule of the time. Right. Where someone who sees visions or even knows cures uh, is accused of being a witch. Right. And um, where the Catholics um, and priests especially had to hide for fear of death. Right. I mean, it's been said before that Elizabeth I, particularly later in her reign, basically ran a Protestant police state. Mm-hmm. where if you were Protestant, literally, God help you. Which is, I think, very much clear in this, particularly we have, is it uh, William Redcliffe, who's sort of the, you know, sort of the witchfinder general, in a way, who suddenly becomes very much the focus of this story. Uh-huh. But I think it deals with this big 
sense of a country under threat. Yes. And the fact how far people will go in sort of the name of protecting the country, which is, I think, a theme that's in a way, way I think, relevant to the, the day and the era and the time in which we live in now. <laughs> yes. But it's amazing, you know, and the, yeah, that um, as people have said about Shakespeare, how timeless things can be. Uh, the more things change, the more things stay the, stay the same. You you bring up uh, Shakespeare um, in the extras. Uh, Louise Jameson says that the most wonderful thing was being in the green room and hearing the velvet tones of the actors. And it's true, this story has a whole different feel to it because these are Shakespearean actors. Yes. Um, portraying a time, you know, when people spoke um, in a you know more floral way, uh, and yes, uh, it feels very different from the um, the Cockney and, and the gutters of London in the previous story. Yes, it is. It's set three hundred years earlier, really. Mm -hmm. And I think it just shows you the range in which Doctor Who has, but also the the kind of the range that the Hinchcliffe era had that he's able to bring back into doing this. Um, but also the fact that, you know, if you think about Mark Platt's writing for things like um, Ghostlight, for example, he's very good at capturing the dialogue and the tone that people have in a particular era. Because mm -hmm. I think in that story really captured Victoria, the Victorian thing, which is one of the things that's great about Ghost of Graustead as well. But here he captures the Elizabethan way of speaking, what we would term early modern English today. Mm -hmm. But it's still being accessible. You know, there's nobody saying you know, thy will be done, and that kind of thing, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Um, which I love Shakespeare anyways, but I can just, I, I know there's people equally who tear their hair out, at the, just the mention of that kind of thing. <laughs> but it, it very much captures the Hinchcliffe era's way of doing the pseudo-historical, but does it in a setting that I don't think the TV series ever came anywhere near doing. Because I think the closest the TV series has really done to doing this kind of thing, at least in the classic series, was, you know, Visitation, which was set almost set 80 years in the future, I think it was, or something mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think it's a story that I think does some really interesting things. It's all set around sort of the Spanish Armada as well, as we were talking about. So I think, you know, it's, I think it's, as I said, it's sort of an English Mask of Mandragora in a way, because... Yes, there's this big sort of big looming threat of a Spanish invasion, but behind the Spanish invasion is something even bigger, which is this alien invasion, or is it pan-dimensional invasion? Yeah, more pan-dimensional, yes. Yes, some interesting things with the ideas of imps and demons and witchcraft and people having visions and whatnot. Yeah, the definition of threat really gets a workout through this. Yes. Because when someone keeps talking about the great threat, they're talking about, uh, let's say, the, the, the threat of demons and, and that, whereas the person that they're talking to is interpreting it as the threat that's going on right out there in the harbor, being the Spanish Armada. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah, so there is a lot of that um, in this. The, and then there's the threat of the Catholic horde. <laughs> but it's, it's the kind of idea... Um... In a way, I know you're going to hate me for doing this, Mary. Mm. Um, but you know, going back to Quatermass in the Pit, in a way, you know. <laughs> but I promise, I'm not making this because I know you. I think you've seen the Hammer film of that, and of course, you have to keep in mind that the idea in that is also the idea of these creatures that have inspired imps and demons and mass hysteria and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's all gets sort of to a certain extent played out again here in a slightly different context. 
where it's the idea that there's these creatures who have basically taken on this form uh, and who have basically are using these sort of the religions and the sort of the iconography and the mythology right. um, to their own advantage. But they can also, there are these imps and demon-like creatures who can also build people up into mass hysteria, uh, which is very similar to that kind of notion that Nigel Neal came up with there. Um, but then again... Well, you're talking about possession. Yes. Yes. Which happens in Greater Mass in the Pit as well. So I, I promise I'm not just dropping in a reference just for the sake of dropping in a reference there. Uh, for those of you keeping track at home. <laughs> but it's always right there on your lips, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think, you know, we've talked about before that British science fiction, particularly sort of since, you know, the, the late 50s, owes a great debt to that. I think that Doctor Who especially does. But I'm just saying that it's sort of it's building on that idea, but it does its own thing with it. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, you know, we talked about the image of Stonehenge and whatnot in Death Comes to Time is very similar to another Quatermass thing as well. But I think it's that kind of the notion of mass hysteria and whatnot. So it's, I think it does what science fiction often does, which is taking these, sort of taking these big themes and dressing them up in a different context as a way of exploring them. Because what, you know, one of the lead characters, sort of lead supporting characters of this who's very sympathetic is the, uh, the Admiral character, Sir Robert Harney and his family, who themselves are Catholic, but also, you know, he's an admiral in the Navy, he's a trusted advisor and whatnot, but he's under suspicion, just simply because he's a Catholic, even though he's, you know, he's loyal to the crown, and in fact, he's, you know, helping lead the English fight against the Armada, but he's still under suspicion the entire time, as is his family. Um, and you have people like Redcliffe who are willing to take advantage of the situation for their own means. Yes, and torture to get information. Oh yes. Mm. You know, and it's a you know we you know we go to the Tower of London and there's you know the rack. The rack, yes, the rack. Bill and you know the doctor nearly gets hanged at one point. Mm -hmm. Very, it's a very interesting recreation of the Elizabethan era. Yes. That I could actually see very much the TV series actually doing. I think that the realization of the imps and demons on TV would have been interesting to see, mm -hmm. given the budgets of, of the time. But this story, far more than Ghosts of Grousted, I could see being done on TV in oh, yeah. that era. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, well played in that era. Yes, it would have been, I think, perfectly suited to it. In fact, I would have loved to have seen, uh, however you visualized, four people being crammed into a priest hole which was only made to hold one person. Yes. Oh my. <laughs> but um yeah, that would have been interesting. That yes. <laughs> what is the doctor, Leela, the priest, and um who was the fourth one? Oh, uh Mistress uh Pincham, I believe. Pincham, yes, yes. Those four. <laughs> and not able to make a sound while the house is being searched. Yes. Yeah, that would have been a very interesting scene to see. <laughs> I wonder if it would have been like what they did with the priest hall of Pyramids of Mars, and it would have been something bigger, than, far bigger than it would have been in real life. <laughs> yeah, they have to have made it bigger, but priest holes were pretty tiny. Yes. I, I think, you know, I think of the two stories in the box set, I think this is the one I enjoyed the most. Yeah, I agree with you. I enjoyed this one the most. Too. I, I, yeah, I think I only have one sort of minor criticism of it um, and that was in particularly some of the writing because 
the fact is that for a long time, the Doctor can't see the imps and the demons. But other characters can. The Mistress Pincham character played by uh, one of Big Finish's regular actresses, Beth Chalmers. Sort of the Anne Harney, and of course Leela herself at one point can see them. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that they do the cliched radio slash audio drama thing of describing what they're seeing. You know, and they describe it in sort of really vivid detail. And it kind of falls into that cliche for me. It doesn't quite feel organic, if that makes sense. Um, no, I didn't have a problem with it. But because only certain people could see them, you had to know. You know, the people who couldn't see them had to know what they were able to visualize. Well, they, they go into, they start getting into kind of more vivid detail of things. Hmm. It's, it goes beyond sort of, you know, the green eyes, the, the burning green okay, eyes. Okay, well, when she, of... yeah, when she's describing the main creature, yeah, yeah, she does go into great, greater detail than she has to. Yeah, that was, that was what I was referring okay. to. But most of the time it works. As I said, it's a very, very good story. Mm-hmm. Um, Worth listening, if only just to hear Tom Baker being drugged in in front of the Queen's Privy Council, having to try and not change history, but being forced to make a big speech anyways. <laughs> Which is an absolute delight to listen to, and I would have paid good money to have seen Tom Baker actually perform that. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, on one of the extras, one of the um, actors say that this is a rattling good yarn, and uh, I agree. Yes. And I think that of the two stories in the boxes, I said, Devil's Armada, I think, is the better of the two. It's certainly mm-hmm. the one I enjoy more. Yes. Um, probably because being in a four-parter, it doesn't outstay its welcome, which I think Gus of Graustad does to a certain extent. Yes. I, I don't know why they felt compelled to make a six-parter. I think two four-parters would have been just fine. Yes. And probably would have helped out on in regards to something that has made the box set a little bit controversial in some circles. And I think actually what in a way brings us to the big question, which is, is it worth the price tag that's attached to this, given that I'm looking at the big finish site at the moment? The download is $45 alone. Um, and the CD version uh, with shipping is about 100 for basically 10 episodes worth and about, what, 70 minutes or so worth of extras on a disc. So I think the, the, there's been a, a, the fact that it was such a hefty price tag was a source of controversy. But I think that it's a valid question to ask. I mean, you know, this is a, it's a hefty investment. Well, it is. And there's a lot of story and there's a lot of big cast. Yes. A lot of production went into this. So for what you're getting, it probably is well worth the price. Yeah. I mean, that's... but I think in the future, maybe they should not undertake such mammoth projects and, and give us more affordable product. Yeah. I mean, the price tag is what it is. Because of the huge cast that this has, and that, you know, they're longer stories as well, mm-hmm. compared with the what we've been getting in the regular season, which is a single disc with two episodes. So occasionally, you know, technically one bigger story across two different releases. I will say that I think that the longer format of doing four episodes works far better. Mm-hmm. It gives you a lot more space to tell stories. Things aren't quite so rushed, right? Which I think confirms the sort of the criticisms that people such as Trevor over the Doctor Who podcast have made of the fourth Doctor Adventures not being long enough. I, I don't know if I would have been... I think there's stories where the format works, but there's, I think, far more stories where that format doesn't work. Um, and I think something like The Devil's Armada shows that you can do a lot more with that kind of spacing. Mm-hmm. 
Whether it's necessary to do a whole 10-episode box set of a six-parter and a four-parter, though, I don't know about. I think, as you said, Mary, the four-parter works far better than the six-parter, and indeed why they felt the need to do another six, do a six-parter to begin with is a bit beyond me, because yeah. you know, the Hinchcliffe era didn't do very many six-parters at all. Right. They did one. They did a big one to end the season, and in fact, they put it first on the box set, which is even weirder, uh, if you think of it in that regards. Mm-hmm. I will say, just to kind of give my own thoughts on the, the whole price issue, I think it's Tom Baker's best work for Big Finish to date um, in terms of his performances. And I think for, you know, for the amount of story that you're getting and the size of the cast you're getting, I think it's well worth the price, especially if this is your era of Doctor Who. Right, and that's what I was going to bring up, is that there are, there's a huge fan base for Tom Baker and they would be doing themselves a big favor getting this. So for them, the price is probably, you know, not an obstacle. Yeah. I think if you're coming to this from a slightly different tack, that this isn't your era of the show, because, you know, I came into Doctor Who through the classic series, but the Tom Baker era is not really my era. I don't know about you, Mary. Uh, no, actually, the fifth Doctor is more my era. Hmm. Which is interesting, because you don't like him on audio very much. <laughs> no, I don't. I really like his TV shows, but I do not like him on audio, no. Um, I think it's a worthwhile investment, I think, for anybody who enjoys the Tom Baker era. And I think for people who enjoy Doctor Who on audio, it's a well-worth investment. For somebody maybe new to Big Finish who's sitting there looking at the price tag, I think there's better things you could get with your money and sort of work your way back to this, perhaps. Because, you yeah, know, it is a hefty investment but I think it's an investment worth making. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I think we've just about covered this box set. I think we have. So uh, if you'd like to send in your thoughts on this or Death Comes a Time or anything that we've reviewed or anything you'd like us to review, please send in your thoughts into feedback.vortex at yahoo.com or you can join our Facebook group, which I believe has about 70 members at the moment. Uh-hoo. Yes, we are growing slowly but surely. Very good. As a matter of fact, we are very soon going to be approaching our first anniversary. In fact, by the time this episode comes out, we will have passed the first anniversary of when we recorded our very first episode. Really? We recorded our first episode on October the 23rd of last year. Basically, so I could have a full month to play around with the editing so I could learn what I was doing. Um, which we will have passed that anniversary just a few days ago, and we'll be uh, releasing an episode uh, later in November to mark our first anniversary. But in the meantime, Mary, what are we doing next episode? Um, I have us doing uh, the set of Cyberman 1. Yes, we'll be looking at Big Finish's spinoff series, or the first season of Big Finish's spinoff series, uh, covering the Cybermen, which is kind of a sequel to the earlier Eight Doctor story, Sword of Orion, which we reviewed back in Episode 3. Uh, so we hope you'll join us for that. And I guess until then, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. So long. Thanks for all the fish. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>